been a big weekend in our city. I'm sure you know that. We've been celebrating the 100th anniversary of the high school and now 74 years here at East 10th Street. A lot of remembering is happening. A lot of celebration is happening. There have been a lot of things involved with this weekend, particularly with the 100th anniversary of the high school. Now, there was one unfortunate thing that happened, but you sure did come through for me. This happened. This happened. I was arrested. Listen, I was reading my Bible at Oscars. I get arrested. And Mike Mosley gets in on the act. I mean, it's a, it was a bad day. I mean, you can see it's just really tough. But then I had that bail money. Had that bail money. Now, many of you were wondering if Mark took some of that money because you know where Mark was standing last Sunday. Right next to the bucket. Now, there was a moment I had to fight him off, and he got real ugly after everybody left. Uh, He only got $50, but I still had enough. I still had enough. Um, Actually, he didn't take 50. It was a lot more. But listen, it was, uh, it's okay. Uh, But so thank you so much for getting me out. That was part of what was going on this weekend. Now, when we remember, we usually go back to the past. And we want to, you know, we want to reminisce about where we were, who we were. I just noticed on Facebook there were some people doing just that. So I thought, ah, if you put it public, I'm making it public. So take a look. Just take a look. So here is Leslie, class of 1992. And then here he comes. Wait for it. Our own Jason Etheridge, 1996. Which, by the way, if you haven't tried his barbecue sauce, you gotta get, you got to try it. you got to try it. Jason, I, 15 bucks for that. 15, because that went on the Internet, too. Um, okay, so, uh, and then also we have another great couple, Casey and Jennifer 09, which even the homecoming queen, Jennifer, like, man, you were super popular. Um, that's awesome. Um, I was none of that. Um, definitely not homecoming queen, uh, but not super popular either. And then here's this last one. Can you help? I mean, she didn't put her class. What class was she? 98. I just thought maybe 89, 88. I didn't know. So, um, okay. Um, all right. So, but you, this is what people were doing. They were posting their graduation photos or senior photos on Facebook and they were remembering. But we just don't remember at homecoming. You, it, what you also do is you look forward to the future. You, like, you look in the past and then you let that drive what comes next. And even at the celebration of the time capsule, there was a lot of talk of the past, but then what did they do? They talked about what we have coming in the future. And that's kind of a pattern we see in Paul's, uh, Peter's letter. So I, I want to take that introduction, uh, and I want to now move us to what Peter does. He does the exact same thing. So Peter, in the first part of the letter, verses 1 through 12, he tells them who they are. What they've, what they've received as Christians. And then what he does next is he tells them all about the things he wants them to do as they move into the future. So take a look at that list. Verses 1 through 12. Remember, these are the things he has told them. It took us five weeks to unpack this list. He says that they are chosen. They're sanctified by the Spirit. They're sprinkled by the blood of Christ. They're born into a living hope. Born into an inheritance that never fades. They're shielded by God's power through faith. 
They're gaining a proven faith. They're receiving praise, glory, and honor. They're having an inexpressible joy, and they are recipients of grace. All of that, like all that they have experienced and they, they, they are experiencing now, they have, they are, and now he's going to move forward to what they need to do into the future. Verse 13, this is the thing we unpacked last week. Verse 13, he tells them, now you set your hope, you literally fix the mind on the grace that's going to come to you when Jesus returns. You don't forget that's a guarantee, you can take it to the bank, so fix your mind. You fix your mind on that hope. That's what he tells us. That's the first command he gives them. After reviewing and remembering all that they have received, you now, as you look into the future, you set your mind on that hope that's coming. It's the hope of grace. You just don't receive grace. You're going to receive grace in the future. So now we move into the next section. He's going to tell them another thing he wants them to do. In light of all that stuff from the past, now i got another thing he says I want you to make sure you do. That's where we go. Three verses. They're all very short. Three verses. We pick up chapter 1. We're going to read verses 14, 15, 16. A short passage this morning. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as, you had, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Okay, that's our passage for the morning, right there. So let's just start unpacking it, just from the beginning. So in light of everything that's, they, that they've received now, here's this next, this second command moving forward into the future. So he starts by talking about, uh, referring to them as obedient children. And I think sometimes you just pass over that. Like, okay, as obedient children, let's get to the good stuff. What do you want me to do? But I don't want to pass over it too quick. Because when he says children, he, he immediately is setting up our identity, these Christians, who they are related to. It is their Father in heaven. So we are the children, God is the Father. It's really important to remember that. Remember Jesus himself taught us to pray, our Father who is in heaven. And for centuries, God was teaching his people, all the way back to the people of Israel, that he is their Father. And there's something really important about God being Father that we humans are often messing up. So look at what look, look at how uh, Moses uh, look at what he says to the Israelites back in Deuteronomy 32, and I think you'll see how important that father-child relationship is. Deuteronomy 32:6. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is He not your Father, your Creator, who made you and formed you? When, when, when we address God as Father, we immediately are recognizing that our life did not come from us. It comes from another source. It comes from God. So what, what, what this acknowledges is you are not God. Just in case you forgot. You are not God. The universe doesn't revolve around you. You didn't make yourself. And in the end, you don't hold yourself or sustain yourself. It is God the Father. So this is a very important thing that we've got to get right out of the gate. That you are a child. And you are born of God, our Father. He is the source. He is creator. We are not. It's always a good thing to remember. Now, from there, he talks about obedience. We're not just like a child. You don't just want a child. You want an obedient child. 
And Paul, uh, Peter here refers to these Christians as obedient children. And obedience is really important for Peter. This is something that he brings up multiple times. In verse 2, in verse 2, we don't have this on a slide, but in verse 2 he said, You have been called for obedience to Jesus. Here in verse 14, he calls them obedient children. And in verse 22, we'll get to that one day. Here, right here in chapter 1, verse 22, he, tells, he talks about obeying the truth. So like, obedience is really important. If you are a child of God, you are a child that should obey. Now, why would Peter pick up on this as such an important theme that he's going to run through this letter? It's because his master talked a lot about it, too. Jesus talked a lot about obedience. That is, you actually follow my commands. You keep them. Just one example. At the Last Supper. I mean, this is the night he's betrayed. Or he'll be arrested and then the next day crucified. At that Last Supper, Jesus says this. It's recorded in John 14, 23. Anyone who loves me, anyone who loves me, will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. You have to obey. You ever had a child obey? You have children? You ever had one not obey? I love it. I saw one mom right now give a look to her son. It was a killer look. It was great. Wonderful. Wonderful. There might be a chore in their future. Be obedient. Yes, yes. You want children who obey because you, you give, if you've had a child in your home that doesn't listen, it'll drive you crazy. You can lose your job. You can lose your house. You can lose your health. You can get through it. You have a kid that won't listen, it will drive you crazy. Tell them to, tell them to load the dishwasher and come back in the kitchen and it's not loaded. Tell them to get dishes off the ground that they didn't pick up and you come in and they're not picked up. I'm, we're now in a therapy session uh, from my last 24 hours. Um, so thank you. Uh, it will drive you crazy. You want obedient children. Well, that's no different than our God, our Father, and we as His children. We obey. Because it shows a lot about the relationship. And it shows a lot about respect. It shows a lot about who holds authority and who doesn't hold authority. And it really is an order to the world. So we are obedient children. Okay, so, so kind of moving from there now, Peter's got two things he wants to tell him. Two, two things that they need to obey. One's negative, one's positive. So we start with the negative. Here's what he says next. He says, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, but let's just focus in on that, the, those two words, evil desires. In the Greek, in the original language, it's just one word. It's just desire. So he actually doesn't describe the desire as evil. There's no adjective. It's just desire. The context is what causes the New International Version, the NIV translators, to put evil in front of desires. Because the context says these are evil desires. But the word itself is just desire. Let me give you an example of when Jesus used the same word from a positive direction. He's at the Last Supper, again at the Last Supper, and he says this to his disciples. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Same word. I have desired it. So Peter here is telling them, don't conform to your desires. So it's just literally a desire. It's an appetite. It's, a, it's something you yearn for and want. There's nothing really bad about desires. What makes a desire bad is it when it becomes unanchored 
from the knowledge of God. It's when it becomes unmoored from the boundaries set up by God our Father. So, for example, physical intimacy is a wonderful desire God has given every human being. But if you let that desire go outside of the boundaries God has given it, it's going to go haywire. It will go wrong. Uh, there's a preacher up in New York since retired. His name's Tim, Tim Keller. And I don't know if he made this, if he came up with this illustration or he picked it up from someone else. But he said, uh, uh, when, when talking about physical intimacy, particularly a physical intimacy that's supposed to happen in a marriage, it's like a fire in a fireplace. Like, a lot of good comes of a fire in a fireplace. It brings warmth. It gives light. All kinds of great things. Who doesn't love a fire in a fireplace? But if you take the fire out of the fireplace and put it in the corner of the house, you're going to have a problem. Because a fire isn't meant to be lit in the corner of a house. It's meant to be controlled and put in a particular context. You take it outside of the context, if you take it outside the boundary, it's going to burn up a lot of stuff. And I know many of us have had that experience where you take desires and you take them outside of their appropriate context and it hurts people. Acquiring money. There's no, there is no problem with having money. You can have lots of money. But if having money becomes your life, it's going to cause a lot of problems in your life. And so what Peter is referring to is a desire that now is no longer within the boundaries of what God has said of where it should live. So when desires start taking form and they start to grow and take shape outside of the knowledge of God, when they take shape in the ignorance of God, they're going to cause a lot of trouble. And I think, I think at this point, I think all of us can come up with examples in our own life where that has happened, where a desire that could be good goes wrong. And it hurts you and it easily can hurt others. So these are desires separated from the knowledge of God. There's one passage in particular where this really plays out. It's one of my favorite passages out of uh, Paul's letters. He, he's saying exactly what Peter's saying, except he just, he just explains it. He just gives it a little bit more flesh on the bone here. Here's what he says, Ephesians 4, we're just taking the second half of verse 17 and verse 19. I've underlined all the places where Paul is referring to thinking or something related to the mind or ignorance or knowing. He says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. That's useless thinking. It's thinking, but it's useless thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and they're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they are given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. They just want more and more and more. So when desires become unanchored from God, there is no satisfying them. And you can just play that out in so many places in ordinary life where your desires go unhinged. No, no boundary. And there will be no end. You, we actually will start making up ways to try to satisfy ourselves. And that will ultimately lead to hurt and pain and destruction. And it stems from an ignorance in the mind. And when the mind goes dark, the heart goes dark. And when the heart is dark, desires go anywhere they want to. And a lot of people get hurt, including ourselves. 
So this is why the NIV translators call these evil desires. They're evil desires. All right, so let's go to the positive side. So don't conform to a life ignorant of God because when you do so, your desires, unanchored, go crazy. And you never can satisfy them. Okay, so the positive side, though, is this. Be holy in all you do. That's the call. Be holy. Now, now the question that emerges immediately is, well, why do I need to be holy? Like, where'd that come from? Let's see what came just before. Just as he who called you is holy. And so it's because of God. It is because that is who God is. He is holy. That is how you're supposed to be. So, but what's holy? Okay, so this is like one of those $10,000 religious words, holy. I'll give you just one definition from one scholar who wrote it really concisely. Here it is. He says, to say that God is holy means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. That doesn't mean God's an egotist, by the way. If God is the most joyful being in the world and who he is is the definition of what it means to be happy, then to seek His honor is to seek the most joyful thing in the world. This makes sense. You, I want God to be about Himself. Because He's the happiest, most joyful being in the world. He has no taint of sin. To be about, to, for God to be about Himself is the most glorious thing in the universe. It's wonderful. And when we are about Him, then we get to be part of the most happy thing in the world. So to be holy is to be separated from sin, and that's the call. That's the call. It's supposed to be separated from sin. And we've got a problem because we've got a lot of poison in the body. A lot of selfishness that's taken root inside of us. All of us have. But now this is where that father-child thing starts to play with, uh, come into play. Remember, you're obedient children, and so as children, what do you typically want to do? You want to be like your parent. That's typically how this plays out. Usually a child wants to be like their parent. Uh, typically, as a general rule. Here's what one scholar does. I just want to quote this same scholar because I like what he said about how these two now begin to tie together. It is the nature of children to want to imitate their parents. Christian, uh, Christians should delight in imitating God, but both because He is their Father and because of His moral excellence is inherently beautiful and desirable. To be like Him is the best way to be. That would just make sense. Now, if you're like me, you look at that and you say, but I don't really feel all of that. That's not God's problem. That's a problem with my heart. Just because I can't see all of His beauty and glory and all of His happiness doesn't mean it just doesn't exist. It means I've got a problem with my eyes and my mind, and so I'm constantly putting myself in front of God's Word. I'm hanging out with y'all because you help me. And the Word helps me get to a point where I can see Him as the most beautiful and desirable thing in the world. That's what I need. And so I want to become like Him. Peter says, you obedient children, you be holy because He is holy. He is your Father. Now Jesus says something like this. This has got the echo now. Peter's echoing something Jesus said multiple times, and I think you'll know this one in particular, because it's one of those that we kind of blank out on and say, surely He didn't mean that. Here's what He Here's what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 47-48. in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Really, Jesus? Yeah, really? That's, you be like your Father in Heaven. Now, 
perfect here, we think of sinless. It's just to be complete, to be mature. That's what perfect means here. But the call is, you be like your Heavenly Father. That's an echo, I think, coming through this passage. I think Peter actually remembers Jesus saying this. But there's actually a louder echo. He actually just quotes from the Old Testament. Like, literally, he just quotes an actual verse that says just this. And it's centuries old. All the way back in the Old Testament. Here's what he says. Remember this right at the end of the verse. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. There Peter's quoting Leviticus 11.44. He's just quoting the Old Testament. Now I kind of want to make a point. I wouldn't call it a side point, but I want to insert it here. Peter is quoting the Old Testament. The point is that the Old Testament, the whole Bible is actually relevant for life. I mean, your boring life. Some of you don't have boring lives, so I'm just trying to get the point. It's like real life, like right where you live, when you're driving on Old Farm Road, when you're going into work, when you wake up and have your cup of coffee. It is actually relevant to where you live. It's not something way out there in some religious fairyland. It's right here, right here. When you're loading the dishwasher, when you're going on a walk, when you're celebrating 100 years at the high school, the Old Testament is relevant. The New Testament is relevant. It actually has something to say into our world because it's knowledge about reality. And so I just want to make the point that I think Peter would be in full agreement with what Paul says right here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Not just with, when you're in the walls of a church building. I'm saying when you're going to bed. It has relevance. It is training us as a particular people. The whole Bible. Of all the things Peter could quote, he goes back to the Old Testament and says, this is knowledge about reality. I'm staking my life on this stable truth. Okay. But all that sounds really big, doesn't it? I mean, do you really, you really think you can be holy? I mean, really. I mean, just be honest. Do you think, do you think you're up for this? I don't. Give me four more hours with my kids at home. Tesco's out of town today. That's right. That's right. It's me for three days. I hope I'll be back on Sunday next week. I don't think I'm up for it. The next four hours are going to be tough. Now, this next hour after service is going to be great. It's going to be a big buffet. I mean, it's going to be wonderful. But then I've got to go home. And this is going to seem really, really big. So how do you do it? I think we've got to grab on this one thing we might have missed. It's this right here. He who called you. So you don't do this holiness thing alone. You're not just out on an island. Hope you do okay. Good luck. God initiated your salvation. It's God who saved you. You didn't save yourself. You're never good enough. You never will be good enough. It's God who saved you. So it's really important. So it is God doing something, and you mean you have some type of supernatural help in all this. But you also have to do something with the help. So there's this weird tension, isn't there? God is working. He's the one that called you, and yet you better do something with it. Okay, so let me summarize the tension this way. This is how I want to summarize it. These Christians have something to do. They must work out their salvation. And, you know, we just saw two things. Don't conform to evil desires, and two... Be holy because God is holy. And they should never forget, though, in all of it, God called them and His grace will carry them. 
So when I go home today and fail, God's grace will hold me. And He will hold you when you mess up at home in just a few hours. God will hold you. He called you. He's holding you. And don't forget the hope of the grace that's coming in the future. So we just keep those things in tension with each other. It is not just your moral effort that gets you through. It is His Spirit. It is the One who called you helping you. So just remember that. Alright, so if you had to say it in, you know, with inspired words, here's how you would say that tension. Paul said it, Philippians 2, 12-13. Therefore, my dear friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You better do something. Four. It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. You better work with all your might to work out your salvation. But don't forget, it is God who literally is working in you to actually do the good that He's called you to do. It's the tension. It's us and God, and He is the one sovereign, and He will carry you through. Paul wrote in Philippians 1, and we don't have it on a screen, he says that he is confident of those Christians in Philippi. That he, he says, I am confident that the God who started something in you, He will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So we hold that, okay? So how do you do this like really big holiness thing? Well, you're going to have to do something, but don't you ever think it's all on you. It is God working with you in His grace. So take a little comfort in that, okay? Beat yourself up just enough to realize you're not God. But don't beat yourself so much that you think you're an older failure. God is holding you. He initiated your salvation. He's holding you now and He will hold you in the future. All those who belong to Jesus. Okay. Let's drive to some application. We'll move through this quickly because this is it's, it's pretty, um, pretty bare bones on some application. Like, what does this actually mean for you right now? I'll just pull some application. Here's a question I'm asking. What evil desires are still active in my everyday life? I feel like this is the one you expect from church. Like, I need to make you think about your evil desires. But you, we're going to need to. Like, where are you messing up? Now, listen, I get it. you got the big ones out there. There's, like, looking at images on a computer screen you shouldn't. There's, like, having an affair. Like, those are big ones. Embezzling money. Lying. Just, just outright lying. Like, those are the big ones. Those are the ones you'd expect me to say. But just be thinking about where you think you're better than someone and you, and you act passive-aggressively in the week. Or think about where you gossip. Don't worry, it's just a prayer request. But slipped in is that good gossip. Just, just think about the subtle things that work their way into your life and my life. That's, what, that's the call. So my, my, my only point here is don't walk out of here thinking you're all good because you're not doing any of the big sins. All of us, all of us have evil desires that are unanchored from the knowledge of God and we need to deal with them. And here's what I would say. Do something that challenges that desire. If, if binge-watching TV is your issue, because binge-watching TV can be an issue, then just give yourself four episodes at a time. Just cut one. Just cut one. You think four? I know some of you, you're like, four? Just four? Yes, just go four. But you get the point. Do something to challenge the evil desire. All right, here's the next question. Now, this one's going to sound real churchy, too, but man, I'm going to drive it home on this one. How often do you think about the holiness of God? I mean, let's be honest. How often are you thinking about the holiness of God? When you're driving behind a slow driver, this was my experience yesterday. It was really bad. 
it was like 15 and a 45. It was, I didn't know what was happening. Um, and then, you know what I had to deal with? My heartbeat was up. I knew I needed to back up. And I was so frustrated and I realized, God, what's wrong with me? That's what I was dealing with. Now, I know pastors aren't supposed to act like this, but that's where I was in my flesh. You know what I was thinking about? Not the holiness of God. How often are you thinking about the holiness of God? Here's why this is important. So I'll give you this funny example about slow drivers, whatever. But here's why this is important. On a very real, concrete level, this is why this is important. It's because this key truth that we all know, we talked about it last week. What we focus our minds on will shape us. If all you do is listen to sports talk radio, do you know what you're going to have at the tip of your tongue in a conversation? Facts. You're going to have sports stats on the tip of your tongue. You're going to know everything about whatever you've been listening to. Because what you focus the mind on is what shapes us. So it brings us to this really important uh, observation made by A.W. Tozer. Some of you may know of A.W. Tozer. He wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. Here's what he said. What comes into our mind when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. i got to read that again. It's one of the most famous quotes from Tozer. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself. And the most uh, portentous fact about any man is what he, at any given time, may say or do. But, what he is in his deeper, deep heart conceives God to be like. And look at this last sentence. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. If God is far out in the distance, not related to your life when you make coffee in the morning, if He's somewhere out here, He just lives in this church building, you won't have any interest in getting to know Him because He really won't be relatable. He's so far off. Or if you think God is just mean, He's just mean. And he judges people unjustly. You won't want to have anything to do with that God. The image of the God, of God that we have in our mind, we will tend towards that image. We will become like that. Who you think God is, is mightily important. And his holiness is part of who he is. He is separated from sin. So when we think about his greatness, when we focus our minds on him, it literally will begin to change everyday life for us. Literally. Now, this isn't just some magic formula, like read lots of theology and immediately you'll be sinless. But what it does is it begins to train the mind in the right direction because you will focus on something. Do you know who figured that out 15 years ago? Mark Zuckerberg figured that out. And he decided at some point to put an app on your phone and decide that, that, that if, I, if he can interest you enough, you'll just spend your day scrolling through other people's lives. He figured that out and it affects us. I'm talking about Facebook, by the way. Just, okay. All right. Okay, and you can pick all the other social pieces, too. Not bad in themselves. We will focus on something. Let's focus on God and who He is. All right. Let's make a point about... Oh, not yet. Let's not do that. I want to make a quick point as it relates to us as a church. 74 years ago, Miss Pugh started teaching children in this neighborhood. You know what she was teaching them? She was teaching them the Bible. She's teaching them Bible stories. She was training these little kids' minds to focus on the holiness of God and how good He is. A God full of love and grace. A God separated from sin. And she just started teaching these little kids. 
And because that old lady started teaching those small kids, a church emerged. And that church lasted for 74 years. And many of you are the children, literal children or spiritual children, of that little group of kids that were studying with Miss Pugh when she was teaching that Bible. This church was founded on training the mind to focus on the knowledge of God found in Scripture. For 74 years, there's a lot of good people that have had long marriages because their mind was focused on the God of the universe and all of His holiness and grace. Because that lady was teaching the Bible to these little kids in the neighborhood 74 years ago. So that's, that's who we have been and that's who we will be. And if Jesus tarries, we got another 74 years of teaching the Scriptures and having our mind shaped by the holiness of God. That's who we are. So this homecoming, we remember that. It's a fitting passage for our homecoming celebration today. One last thing, our next step. So here's something we can do this week. Now, it's going to sound super religious. Listen, I get it. I get it. I knew it when I wrote it. Focus on God's holiness. I know. Sounds just out there. Here's what I want us to do. Read Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 6 every day. Now, listen, there was somebody in our church that said 8.30 was a little early for a text message. She probably spoke for many of you. We're going 5.30 in the evening this week. Okay, I don't want to abuse the text messaging service. But every day this week, including Saturday, you're going to get a text message that says that. And then find a Bible and read Isaiah 6, 1 through 6. Okay? And what that is, is that's a passage where the prophet Isaiah is given a vision of God's holiness. And it is so immense. It is so immense that he understands who he is. He is fallen and sinful. And he stands before God who is holy. And I just want to read that passage every day. And I want us to remember this is the God who is right here where we are. It is a God who is immense in his holiness. And we are to be like him. And so I want us to read the story, the vision Isaiah has. Six verses every day. And just let the Holy Spirit do something. I get it. It's not going to be the magic formula for you. It's not going to be for me. But we need to train the mind because what we think of God is the most important thing about us. He is holy. So we want to focus on that. It comes right out of our passage. And we can do it each day, right around 5.30. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your holiness. Thank you that you have revealed it to us. We wouldn't have come up with this on our own. Thank you for this church established 74 years ago. Thank you for what you stirred in this pew. And thank you for all the kids and then the parents and then from their friends. And this church has produced fruit for 74 years. Thank you. We pray and pray in that it will continue to produce fruit if your son does not return for 74 more years. All of it to your grace. All of it because you're holy. And would you help us? Help us to be holy right where we live. Where we work, where we sleep, all of it. Every part of our life. We pray that under the banner of the authority of Jesus, our Savior. And together we sing. Amen.